Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Eric Gaskill, who will talk about some of his DIY kits, as well as some groundbreaking graphene speaker technology that he's working on. But first of all, Spotify settled with David Lowry and Melissa Farrick. What does that mean? Well, David Lowry from Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker sued Spotify about a year or so ago. And the reason was that David wasn't getting paid, and a lot of other songwriters weren't getting paid as well, for streams on Spotify. And it turns out that Spotify wasn't paying them because they couldn't find the publishing information. This is why it's so important that all the metadata gets properly input when you're sending your files to Spotify or any other streaming service for that matter. If they don't have the information, they can't pay you. That being said, since they weren't getting paid or since they couldn't find the publisher in order to pay them, that's still no excuse for playing the songs or at least in the eyes of David Lowry, and then another songwriter, Melissa Farrick, who came in on the suit as well. So they sued Spotify for $150 million, and just a few days ago, Spotify settled for $43.4 million. So that's quite a bit less, but nonetheless, it was still a pretty good amount of money. Now, it turns out that Spotify knew this all the while. They knew that they weren't paying songwriters for these particular songs. There's a lot of them. But what they did is they actually put money aside for it, thinking that that would satisfy any copyright problems. And in fact, it doesn't. That's the big problem. You can put money aside, you can put it in escrow, but that doesn't really absolve you from the problem of copyright infringement. You're playing something without permission. That being said, it looks like everything is all sorted now. And part of the deal was that Spotify is bound to find the proper publisher to pay in the future. Now, once again, this comes down to the record label and the publisher actually getting the right metadata together in order to let Spotify and the other streaming services know. But again, it illustrates why it's so important that you have to have that together. A lot of times especially young artists that don't have a record company or management looking over them, will just upload their files and not think too heavily about the metadata. But it's really important because should you have a lot of plays, you want to get paid for it. And the only way is when people know where to pay you. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my four-week music mixing primer webinar course. Go to Mixing Primer. It's all one word, mixingprimer.com to learn more. Also check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to a powerful online group, all of my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, core basic training, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. Now here's something that really isn't related to audio, but I thought I'd mention it anyway because in a roundabout way, audio is involved. A new crowdfunding campaign is about to start for a Bluetooth salt shaker. Yes, a connected salt shaker. It's called SMALT, S-M-A-L-T. And the crowdfunding campaign is going to be on Indiegogo. It's by a company called Herb and Body. Now, why would you have a connected salt shaker? Now, it does more than just shake salt. And basically, the connection will tell you how much salt that you're adding to your food. 
So it measures all that, but it also plays music and it lights up, gives you a little light show when that's happening. And, and this kind of falls in the category, I think, of the connected hairbrush, which there actually is one of those. So I think what I'm asking here is, has all this gone too far? Does everything in our world have to be connected? Now, we'll just take it into the realm of audio. So we'll go into the studio, and there are certain mixers where you could affect your Q-mix via an iPhone app, which on the surface sounds really great. But try to do it while you're in a session, and especially when you have to make a quick move while you're in the middle of the session, and you find out that it's really tough because you have to open up the app, and you have to find the right page, and you have to do it, and it takes a lot longer, and it's a lot more difficult than you might think. It's just a whole lot easier if you do have some sort of control surface there, even an old-fashioned controller, an analog controller, you can reach over and just tweak the knob, and there you're there. Again, we come back to just because we can, does that mean we have to connect everything? Well, I'll let you figure out whether SMALT is going to be a hit or not. As far as I'm concerned, that's a solution looking for a problem. There's been numerous studies that have said if you do have a problem with SALT, it's not because of the salt that you're actually pouring out from a salt shaker, because that's really minimal in terms of your salt intake per day. In fact, most of it's coming through processed foods, and that's where you have to look out for it. So smalt doesn't really help you in that regard. Nonetheless, here we are in our world of everything connected. My guest today is Eric Gaskill, who started out as a violin player, but then took a big left turn in audio electronics. After a stop working on ribbon mics at AEA, Eric completed his PhD in sound recording at McGill University, where he now teaches. Seeing a need for good quality audio kits for his students, Eric created GKL Audio, which offers a couple of very nice preamp kits at reasonable prices. Eric is also one of the leaders in using graphene and audio loudspeakers, and his aura sound has made some breakthroughs on that front. I spoke with Eric via Skype from McGill University in Montreal. I read through your bio and you were a violin player for, or you're still a violin player, but was that what you thought you were going to be in life? I think I quickly discovered that uh, I was never going to be quite at the professional level of a violinist. It's a very competitive field. So when I did my undergrad, I actually studied electroacoustic composition. So for a while there, I was under the impression I was going to be a composer uh, for film scores and, and other things like that. I quickly got bitten by the uh, engineering bug. I, I found myself more drawn to the equipment I was using to make the music than the music itself. Did that happen at university? It did, yeah. Yeah. I know you work for Wes Dooley at AEA. How did that happen? Oh, Wes. Wes is great. Um, actually, when I, when I graduated from my, my undergrad, I uh, was looking for a job in Los Angeles, which is where I'm from. I grew up in L.A., and uh, Wes's shop was actually just down the street from my parents' house. So when I was searching through the yellow pages, that's an example of how old I am, uh, for uh, studios in Los Angeles, I came across this one that was down the street, and I was surprised to see it. So I, I rode my skateboard down and knocked on his door, and he, he gave me an internship. Wow, very cool. So you learned a lot about ribbon mics right off then. Yes, Definitely. More than, more than the average person should ever need to know about ribbon microphones. Because I go way, way back when he was just a, AEA was just a dealer. And then he started to build his own mics, finally. 
and uh you know it put him in a different realm completely when that happened definitely i mean it, i think he sort of describes his work on the 44 as more of an art project than a than a you know business uh, project but i think he started making replacement parts for 44s and eventually got to the point where he was making 100 percent replacement parts and then decided at that point he may as well assemble them into microphones yeah yeah definitely I also read in your bio that you went to Mali to study traditional drumming. How did that happen? I mean, how do you go from violin to that? Uh, well, I, I, I thought that it would inform my, my composition at the time, uh, and it did. It was very interesting to see how the difference in attitudes and perspectives on, on music and rhythms that, uh, that they have there that, uh, relative to what I was brought up with, with the classical Western training. You know, every rhythm has a has a purpose, sort of be it for a wedding or a celebration of some sort, and it has a particular meaning. And then you can combine things to sort of tell a story with the with the different rhythms that you use. So there's a lot more depth, particularly in, in sort of the uh, the different rhythms that they use uh, than we have in our in our Western musical tradition. Uh, so it was a very interesting trip. Yeah. So how long were you there? Uh, three months. So just just one summer. Yeah, I I had uh, some extra money left over for for a grant uh, when I was finishing up my my university degree, and I decided to uh, to spend it on a trip to go there with a group of students uh, from Brown University. There's so much I want to get into with you, but first of all, tell me about the Montreal music scene. I know you're in Montreal now, and I always hear it's very vibrant. What's your take on it? Oh, I, I love it here. I, you know. Coming from Los Angeles that has all these, you know, pay-to-play venues and it's very difficult to sort of have a grassroots band start up and, and kind of build up to playing mid-side venues. Uh, here, there's, it's, it's much more open and uh, it seems like bands are forming and breaking up and reforming all the time. Uh, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of venues for bands to play at and, uh, and people are very interested in experiencing new and experimental music. So I find that uh, even though Los Angeles is, is famous for you know so many bands and record uh, recording studios, that uh, Montreal has a really great sort of grassroots music movement that uh, sort of helps to bring up more experimental, more interesting genres of music. Let's go up to JKL. How did that come about? Because that's very interesting that you would go from your player. And then you study audio, but you're into microphones because of where you're working. And then you're into building mic preamps and kits. <laughs> How did that come about? Um, well, GKL was really born from uh, me building kits with uh, students in my electronics course at McGill. So as I was doing my PhD at McGill University in sound recording, they stuck me with uh, well, really, the very technical courses. Uh, I just happen to have a more technical background than a lot of the, the folks that come through the program. A lot of them are more focused on you know, music theory or performance. Um, and I'd already had a, a fair amount of electronics background. So I was teaching a course in electronics and trying to come up with projects for my students to build, to have the opportunity to actually have some hands-on experience. Uh, you know, it's difficult to to teach these very abstract concepts of, of electronics and voltage and current without something that uh, really you know, makes it relevant to the students' lives. 
So I, at first I was building guitar pedals and other projects from, from various online sites. And I realized that it, it would be more useful if I had a project that was specifically designed for the concepts that I was teaching in class. So it, it started with a kit that uh, was designed to sort of teach the various fundamental elect electronics concepts. So like uh, I designed a mic pre that uh, you know has a, a voltage divider as the pad circuit and it has a high pass filter. So I could use these elements in the mic pre circuit to teach about the electronics concepts. And we started manufacturing those kits for the students and realized that there was probably a market for them outside of just the, the university. So my brother actually at the time was doing his PhD in electrical engineering at McGill. And he helped me a lot with, uh, with the design of uh, a lot of our circuits. And uh, we got into designing discrete op amps and that sort of uh, rolled into us designing our own op amp, which we now use as sort of the core to the GKL equipment. So GKL really has two sides to it. We have a couple academic kits for students um, that we sell uh, through our website and also through uh, DIYrecordingEquipment.com, mm -hmm. so with Peterson and Goodwin there. And then um, we also have some a couple pieces of professional equipment. We have a combination mic pre and Pultec style equalizer and also a five-channel mic pre that uh, is uh, remote controllable. It all looks so very cool, I have to say. Tell me if I'm wrong on this, but it, it seems like your philosophy is to make everything as clean as possible. Uh, definitely. Uh, you know, I studied at uh, McGill with George Massenberg. He's, he's one of the professors there. Uh. And so he was a big influence on the topology that we chose for the GKL equipment. So it's transformerless um, and uses discrete op amps, not for their coloration, but because of their capability to drive small loads and... Uh, and for us to really sort of tune the specific characteristics of the op amp um, as opposed to using an off-the-self solution. Then you had to go get the die and everything, then find the manufacturer for the op amp. How difficult is that? Oh, no, we actually make the, the op amps ourselves. So oh, oh, it's discrete then? It's discrete, ah, yeah. It's a okay. small PCB that uh, we use surface mount components and and then send each one through a battery of tests before putting it in a little potting enclosure. Got it, got it. Real, real old school style discrete op amps. Yeah, very cool. The uh, Baby Pre looks, I, I looked at the specs on that and it was like, wow, for the money on this, this is pretty cool. I'd love to hear one because it, the specs read out great, I have to say. Yeah, oh no, it's it's quite a, a powerful mic pre and the students are, all you know, very happy to have something that's a definite upgrade from the sort of mic pre's they have on their small FireWire and USB interfaces. Um, it can also you can add color to it. Uh, it comes with a transistor amplifier built onto the, the main PCB, and uh, that transistor amplifier is a very simple circuit that's supposed to teach common emitter and emitter follower style um, transistor amplifier circuits. Uh, but you can you can use it or not use it. Uh, that changes the the character of the amplifier a little bit, and then you can also use uh, Peterson's color modules uh, in the circuit board. Uh, you can with a couple jumpers switch the transistor amplifier for a color module that you can install and have a little bit of character if if you want. But 
the goal of the mic pre itself is to have it as clean and low noise as possible. Oh, it's very cool. Definitely. Okay, here's a question for you. When it comes to manufacturing kits, I grew up in the era of Heathkit and Allied, and there's another one I can't remember. Ico was a big one, so this is before your time. But uh, we're back in the tube days. That's what my generation learned on. You know, basically when you're in high school, and and, and if you're going to be where you are now, or where I became, it was you start on one of those kits, and you get your electronics chops through those. But again, we're talking tubes. And then all of a sudden, kits in general, electronics kits in general, just kind of disappeared for a while. And I was told that there's a liability issue that freaked everybody out. Now, I could, <laughs> I could see where that would happen when you have high voltage with tubes. But now we're talking about, you know, relatively low voltages here, uh, you know, with op-apps and and everything. So what really is the deal with that? Uh, well, it is actually, it can be difficult. You have to worry about, you know, uh, people potentially electrocuting themselves. You have to worry about UL or CE certification if you want to be able to, to ship these to, uh, you know, different countries. And, um, you know, when, when people are building the power supply themselves, it, it's very difficult to guarantee that it will meet those specifications. Uh, what we do is to use an external 16-volt uh, AC um, well wart style adapter for the kits. And that way, the actual voltage that arrives at the um, circuit itself is, is not dangerous for even novice uh, builders. Yeah, plus the, the whole thing of the power supply is taken care of. So, Although... That's one of the most important parts when we're talking about an audio circuit. As you well know, it's overlooked many times. But, uh, you know, again, that gets around the problem, I, I could see for sure. It does. It does. I mean, we, we do use an uh, onboard linear regulator. So we're taking 16 volts AC instead of the, the typical wall words that, that spit out some, you know, usually pretty dirty DC signal. Uh, so we're doing all the voltage regulation ourselves, but it still comes in to the unit at a, at a voltage that, uh, and, and current that is safe to, to deal with. Okay, let's get to graphene speakers now. I was turned on to this whole concept, I don't know, two, three weeks ago. I posted it on my blog, and there was a press release or something I saw from the University of Exeter, and they were talking about uh, graphene speakers and more. But it seems to me, and I don't know this, but I'm, I'm just from looking at your bio and everything, you were ahead of this somehow. Uh, well, we are a little bit ahead of it. Uh, and the, the technology you're referring to out of Exeter is more of a thermoacoustic application, which yeah. is definitely really exciting. And I, I would be very interested to see how they develop it over the next decade or so. Um, but what really distinguishes our technology from a couple of the other ones that uh, have come out of universities is that ours is sort of immediately applicable to standard dynamic loudspeakers. So uh, there have been there's a technology out of uh, UC Berkeley that uses an electrostat uh, style loudspeaker uh, to uh, in a graphene membrane, which is also very interesting. Uh, however. Uh, due to limitations in being able to posit pure graphene and also in having to sort of uh, change the basic audio circuitry related to, you know, the devices we use on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, our technology 
can really just be a drop in replacement for currently what is being used. And I think that's why our company is a little bit ahead of the curve in, in applying graphene to audio applications. Uh, it's because ours sort of fits into what 99% of the loudspeakers out there are using today. Now, when you say drop in, do you mean as a substitute for the cone? Exactly. So we form uh, a cone out of a graphene material, and that material uh, basically is the just the cone and the dust cap. Uh, so everything else about the loudspeaker can remain the same, although it makes sense to make adjustments to the specific uh, uh, <clears throat> spider or compliance around the outside edge to account for the different mechanical characteristics of the graphene. But uh, the, the whole assembly may, remains exactly the same. It's just that we've replaced the, the cone with a and dust cap with a graphene material. How thick is it? Uh, we can make it all sorts of thicknesses, actually. So we can go, I guess the thinnest we've probably made is about 15 microns, and we've gone about as thick as 300 microns. And uh, so it's variable. Uh, it really depends on how many layers of the material we deposit. And, uh, and depending on how big the speaker is, you'll, you'll want to you know, make it thicker or thinner. So here we go again. You've made a big right turn because now you go from kits and then you're lecturing at McGill and then all of a sudden you're getting into graphene speakers. So how did that happen? <laughs> well, it, it, it does seem like it, it happened sort of all of a sudden. In fact, when we started working on it, it was really more of a side project, just a, a curiosity. Um, I remember when, when my brother and I first started talking about it, it was around the time not sure if you remember the company Crowley and Trip mm-hmm. uh, that was making ribbon microphones. That technology was sold to uh, to Shure, and I remember thinking, "Well, that's interesting that they're they're doing this, uh, but there must be a better solution for that." And my brother was working uh, in on his PhD in electronics, uh, trying to use graphene for battery anodes, and uh, he was working with on a project with uh, General Motors, and I think on their Volt um, battery, and um, he, you know, of course, was interested in the electrical characteristics of graphene, but would talk to me about the mechanical characteristics. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to use this for a ribbon microphone? Maybe we could make something um, really cool out of that. Uh, and uh, so in the context of seeing Crowley and Tripp developing a new material, I thought, well, we can make our own new material. And so we did that just sort of, you know, as a side project in the, in the corner of a lab in, at McGill. Um, deposited some sheets of graphene, crimped them into ribbons, and we wrote a paper for the AES about it, uh, just sort of a proof of concept using the material for for ribbons. Um, But uh, we quickly sort of realized that ribbon microphones are not a particularly large market, Um, and there was a fair amount of development that would still need to go into using the material for, for ribbon mic applications, but it had some great qualities for loudspeakers, there was obviously uh, a lot more potential there for for growth and for different applications. The one thing I can see that makes it very attractive is the fact that it's so thin that the response time is very quick. So the bandwidth should be excellent. But the downside is it seems like it's very fragile, so you, it won't be able to take a lot of power. Is that the case? Uh, in terms of the power handling, it hasn't been uh, much of an issue. The, uh, in fact, the material itself is, is somewhat thermally conductive, which helps a bit with 
power handling because we can help move heat away from the voice coil of, uh, of the loudspeaker. But um, we have a few different iterations of the material. Some of them is more brittle than others. And, uh, but the, uh, the relative strength of the material, considering how thin it is, is, is actually much higher than with most other materials. Wow. Who would have thought? What is the ultimate goal here? Well, um, our company is is really sort of focused on uh, selling and engineering solutions for uh, OEMs. So we, we're hoping to develop the technology to the point where we can get it used by uh, larger companies in their headphone, tweeter, uh, mid-range loudspeaker products. Uh, we're also talking extensively with uh, a lot of cell phone manufacturers. Um, we, we exhibited at CES uh, last January, and we were approached by several of the biggest players in the in the cell phone marketplace, and they were all very interested in the material to solve some of the particular problems they have with the microspeakers that are used in in those devices. So we're um, currently uh, creating some development kits for a few different companies to try to replace the what are typically aluminum membranes in the microspeakers for cell phones and laptops with this graphene material to see if we can improve loudness and power handling for those devices. Earbuds, I guess, as well, things like mm-hmm. that, yeah. I just saw somewhere there was a study on the speaker market, the worldwide speaker market, and it was enormous. And it, one of these things that's under the radar where you never think about it because you're thinking of all those Usually when we think of loudspeakers, we think of, you know, the, the speakers that we listen to for music and everything, but the cell phone, gee, how many cell phones or, and earbuds and stuff like that. And it was something like there's a billion loudspeakers of various configurations per year that are made. It, it was just an enormous number. I, yeah. And I've sort of had the same experience. The, you know, I come from the pro audio background and, and working in studios and recordings, but, uh, and so I sort of saw this as a, as a high-end solution for, for loudspeakers. But what we're finding as we continue to develop the material is that we were being contacted from industries that I never even considered as needing loudspeakers. But we got contacted by someone from the toy industry recently um, and uh, the watch industry, um, automotive, of course. Uh, is, we've had a few companies contact us with, with being interested. So... Yeah, I mean, there's loudspeakers and everything, and uh, you know, I'm where our hope is that we can position this material to be uh, priced economically enough, uh, and yet improve performance enough that it's just a no-brainer for uh, for any type of loudspeaker that can just sort of take over uh, from paper and mylar as a as a valid solution for uh, improving the quality of, of loudspeakers everywhere. How close to reality is it? Uh, well, we have uh, you know we have a few prototypes that we've made. This is a three-inch loudspeaker with uh, with the graphene material. It doesn't look like much. In fact, it looks more or less like a standard loudspeaker. Yeah. Um, this was made for us uh, by a company in the United States called Misco. They're uh, one of the few loudspeaker manufacturers still left in, in North America, and we've been having them do some laser scanning with the clip. Uh, sorry, a clipple system, and um, 
and also some some frequency response and directivity measurements of the of the of the cone to try to get a sense of how it performs relative to to other materials, and it, we see distinct performance improvements. Uh, for the most part, most of our predictions in terms of uh, the improvement in sound quality as well as the uh, improvement in efficiency are have been shown by by their tests. So, uh, really, the big hurdle now for you know, this vision that we have for replacing every loudspeaker with the material is being able to create a manufacturing process that will allow us to keep the price low enough um, and that uh, it becomes a viable solution to all these industries. What are the challenges? Um, at the moment, it's really the, the time to deposit the loudspeakers. Uh, the material itself is very stiff, so the way we've been doing it up till now anyways, is to deposit the material directly into the geometry we want. So we'll make it, we'll form it directly into a cone or directly into a dome for, you know, a loudspeaker or tweeter application. And, um, and that can take, can take quite a while. Um, you know, we've, uh, we've actually managed to get the time to deposit a, a loudspeaker down from about a week and a half to about, uh, 30 minutes. Wow. But, <laughs> but still, 30 minutes is a long time for to make a to make a cone. Uh, you know, we've, we've gone and visited a couple uh, manufacturing plants, and, and their average time is a, about uh, eight to ten seconds for a uh, for a cone. So, the raw material costs are not actually that expensive. Our raw material costs are about on par with aluminum, but it's really a matter of getting the the processing down um not so much in in the technical requirements it doesn't take you know crazy chemicals or you know uh esoteric lab environments it's a pretty standard process um not particularly energy intensive but it's still time consuming and so of course that time is going to has to be reflected in the price of the membranes this may seem like such a basic question but how is graphene made um, well, uh, essentially it's graphite that's been, uh, re you know, reduced down to a single layer. So there's several ways to, to make, uh, graphene. One of the most common one is a chemical vapor deposition process, which is expensive and, and time consuming. Um, what we do is to actually start, uh, with a material called graphene oxide, which are, you know, maybe like three to 10 micron flakes of graphene. So they're a th single atomic layer thick, but they're, they're small flakes that um, have been functionalized with oxygen groups. So essentially they mine it as graphite and then they, they do a process to produce these very small graphene flakes. It looks basically like dust, um, but each flake is, is graphene it's not a large continuous area, but you can then use that to form our material, uh, which essentially takes these graphene flakes and bonds layers together with uh, oxygen groups and other cross-linking agents, um, and uh, it forms a laminate material. So we end up with like tens of thousands of layers of, uh, of sort of stacked flakes of, of graphene that are held together. Uh, with our cross-linking agents, and the cross-linkers sort of help us to tune the mechanical characteristics and therefore the acoustic characteristics of the material. Interesting. Wow. Okay, so that speaker you showed me before, if someone who knew nothing about this 
listen to that speaker against a traditional equivalent, how would they describe the difference? Um, well, it's definitely a lot more detailed. Um, you can see just on the frequency response curves that uh, we extend the high frequency significantly from what the, uh, the standard um, cone of that geometry has. So we did just that. We made a poly and a paper cone of the same geometry with the same uh, spider and uh, magnet coil, et cetera. And then we can just listen between the two or the three actually to see which, you know, what the differences are. So, um, you know, besides the clear high frequency extension, it's also much more detailed. As you say, uh, it's, it's much faster. The material reacts very quickly and it's also very well damped. So it stops very easily as well, which allows you to hear a lot more detail of the performance than with these other loudspeakers. Uh, and the overall impression really is that, it, you know, these are, I'll show it again, it's a small box loudspeaker with a single driver in it. And, you know, as one would expect, it kind of sounds like a box. However, with the graphene speaker, you, you get a lot less of that impression. It really sort of seems like the, the music has come outside of the box, that it's more sort of present, uh, seems more realistic, and uh, and less like, you know, you're listening to something coming out of this, this uh, tiny little enclosure. Wow, that's exciting. When do you expect the process to get to a commercial level? Well, we're actually... Uh, we decided to accelerate that by doing a, a Kickstarter ourselves. Oh. Uh, we're actually launching a Kickstarter in uh, June 20th, where we're going to be pushing our own set of headphones. And the, the goal for this is to really uh, give us the funding and the opportunity to work out the kinks of transitioning this into a large-scale manufacturing process. And once we have that experience, I would expect that we should you know, see this popping up as a viable um, solution for other OEMs probably in about a year. Wow, that fast. That's a good idea, though, with headphones, because if there's anywhere that you're going to hear a difference, it would be there, I would think. Right. They, you know, it uses a single full-range driver, which is perfect for us. Uh, it's relatively small, uh, and there's less uh, confounding variables in terms of, the, the, you know, relative to a loudspeaker design. You know, designing a loudspeaker from the ground up, there's there's quite a bit to to take into account. And of course, the, the acoustics of a of a headphone enclosure are still fairly complicated, but it it really allows us an opportunity to create a high fidelity listening experience that uh, that is easily controlled, um, and uh, and really exhibit the uh, advantages of the technology. Very cool. Well, let me know when that happens, and I'll promote it for you. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, uh, it's coming up, and we're. We're still working out the kinks of the page and, and trying to get everything ready, but uh, I would really appreciate that. Yeah, sure, no problem. Okay, last question. You've gone through a lot of different iterations of business. Was there a piece of business advice that you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Well, I mean, I guess the, the biggest thing that I've learned along the way is, is, uh, is to validate your ideas. The, the biggest thing I've learned is, is, to, is to build what you love, but also validate your ideas. So everything that I've done has, has sort of grown from a, my personal desire to have this thing, whether it be a microphone preamplifier or an equalizer or a really cool pair of headphones. Um, it's, it's definitely something that I, uh, I'm interested in and that I want for myself. Uh, but you also have to make sure that you, uh, 
validated externally. So you're not just building it for yourself that you have the, um, you, you know, there's a market for it out there. You know that there's a desire for that. And, uh, you know, what I've learned through this process of working on this graphene uh, technology that I didn't have when I was starting up GKL is uh, is this process of talking to OEMs, talking to potential customers, really going out there and seeing what their challenges are, what their pain points are, what, what they need uh, and what will make their lives easier. Because when you're asking somebody to change something as fundamental as a, as a loudspeaker, it needs to be better enough that, uh, that they're willing to, to make changes to their uh, manufacturing process. I mean, this is just one example. But, you know, if you want somebody who's already making something to, to adopt your technology, it has to really solve some pain points for them. It has to really improve their life for them to want to go through the process of switching from whatever they're currently mm -hmm. using. So being able to, um, to get out there and talk to these people, to talk to potential customers, to talk to other manufacturers and see what their challenges are and what they need, I think is really an important part of any startup in terms of, uh, you know, making sure that you're on the right path with your technology. Good advice. Definitely. You can see how much you've learned along the way. Definitely. And I guess you'd have to for something as uh, forward thinking as a graphene speaker. I, I think so. And, you know, it, it really has opened some doors to us. Like I never imagined when we first started working on this, uh, and we were making ribbon microphones in, uh, in my brother's back room that, uh, that this would be a technology that uh, could potentially improve uh, cell phone sound quality. Um, and it's really through engaging with uh, these other companies and talking to people that it's brought the potential of our technology in, you know, to a much higher level. Find out more about Eric, you can go to regascale.wordpress.com. That's R-E-G-A-S-K-E-L-L. .wordpress.com. If you want to find out more about GLK Audio, and they have some really nice pieces, go to glkaudio, all one word, .com. And to find out more about Eric's graphene speakers, go to orasound.com, O-R-A hyphen sound, S-O-U-N-D, orasound.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>